Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of the Leadership and Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and today I am joined by a very special guest. It's the CEO of RPS Consulting, Mr. John Chubb. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's, uh, it's very nice to have you on the show and thank you very much for, for giving your valuable time to this. No, delighted, delighted to spare time. It, it is a, a you know a pet passion of mine. I do like to study leadership. I do like to understand you know what makes certain people tick in different ways. So, it's a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. Um, and so I usually start off by sort of asking, uh, how did you get into construction? Um, and I really sort of wanted to understand that from yourself. And and how did you? What led you into this position of being the CEO of RPS Consulting? Yeah, well, it's not a it's not a carefully crafted journey i'm sure it's probably atypical but i think there are a lot of atypical people that um, get involved in construction so i spent the first 21 years of my life in the royal navy um, which is quite different from construction if i'm honest Um, but what it did do for that 21 years is give me a number of leadership skills Um, i am an engineer My, my, my first degree is in electrical engineering um, and my, my second degree is in um, rocket science, which is not much use in construction. So I'm not really playing to my strengths. When I left the service, I went to work for British Telecom, um, where I realised that some of the skills that I picked up in the service were quite useful, um, particularly in the way that consensual leadership decisions are made. It, it might sound um, an anathema to some of some of the listeners that in the military and particularly in the, in the Royal Navy, we get um, our, our seniors around the table and our juniors where appropriate, um, we kick a problem around for a certain amount of time and decide a course of action. So decisions are made quite collegiately. I landed in British Telecom in 2001-2002 um, and found quite a command and control organisation um, and, and managed to sort of switch it to get it to make its own decisions using the brains around the table. And we achieved some extraordinary results. That was at the end of quite a large construction project, taking the building through to operations. I progressed on from there in British Telecom and then landed at um, a company called VT or Vosper Thornycroft, um, a big services organization. And the bit I was running is in secure communications, but then I moved on after a couple of years to be the MD for its nuclear engineering business. And, and we that's probably my first um, real brush with construction. Uh, we were an EPC contractor. So it might seem strange. I've been a contractor and now I'm a consultant. Um, but that's a fascinating job. The nuclear engineering and construction sector is... Um, incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, but some of the problems that it undertakes are, are, are just fascinating and exciting. So I enjoyed my time there. Um, I then took over at the same time a, a waste to energy business um, in VT, uh, and we were um, designing, engineering, and constructing novel waste to energy systems, in this case, uh, pyrolysis systems and autoclave systems. Uh, and as the MD of that business, it was a significant engineering and, and contracting challenge. And I guess one of the, one of the things that formed me in that role is the um, the CEO a chap called Paul Lester um, was incredibly big on partnering with customers. It was really built into the ethos of the company. 
Uh, and when we would go into a contract with a customer, we would look for the win-win agenda at every possible occasion. Um, because when both parties are winning, the project goes well and we get much better outcomes, both for the customer and ourselves. And that formed me. Um, we got acquired by a company called Babcock, who, who you know, are a fantastic large company now. Um, uh, and I decided to take a career break, which lasted all of about six weeks and joined a company called Hogney. Grumpy. Some of um, some of your listeners might remember them, which were consultants, um, primarily working in the water, and transportation, and energy sectors. Um, we had a building services business as well, and that was um, that was sort of my introduction to the consulting side of construction. Uh, worked there for about three years. Um, took a role on the executive committee. Um, ran a similar business in Copenhagen for three years, which was great to, to work and lead um, in a foreign culture. Uh, and, and it's a great place to go, Denmark. I encourage anyone to go there. Um, really enjoyed working there. Got the business back on an even keel. We then sold Grontwey to Swaco, who are a fantastic company, um, and uh, who are also going from strength to strength. And then sort of at the tender age of... 52 um, I decided to retire which was which was good I sat in the garage um, building vintage Vespers and Lambrettas um, uh, whilst electrifying them so it was the sort of world's first conversion and then got a little bit bored after about 18 months to be honest Mike and then joined get, went back into the construction sector because I think it it's nice to be part of an organization where you can see what you've done um, working in a secure communications business, you can never see bits, ones and noughts going down wires and uh, you can't see what you've built. Um, you can say that it's safely running for 365 days a year, it's never been hacked, um, but you can't really see it. There's nothing tangible. When you work in construction, it, it takes a while, but two or three years later, you can walk around a city and say, yeah, that was one of our projects. That was one of our projects. And I quite like that. And I quite like the people in construction. It's got a lot of very bright people. So I drifted back into it, well, by choice. Um, had a number of offers at that time. This was the one that appealed to me. Uh, and sort of, whilst I never started off my working life in the construction sector, I got into it, I enjoyed it, and pretty quickly got back into it after a little career break. <clears throat> it sounds sort of like, most people I speak well it's not it's not on purpose a lot of time it's sort of by accident myself it's, it's sort, of, sort of by accident really um and it isn't it is a construction industry that uh it is an industry that I like to work in and, and, and can't imagine myself working in anything else um so no that's, that's fascinating and so as a CEO then you you, you I mean I, I, I don't know how, how many just out of curiosity, how many sort of people within RPS Consulting do you know? Yeah, there's about 1,600. Wow. Well, it's 1,560-something today, I can't remember. Right. But then we, have, um, we currently have 60 vacancies in the organisation, and we intend to recruit about 300 people in 2021. Wow. I mean, that's quite an undertaking, and, and that's a huge amount of people to sort of um had to lead you know um how from a, from your perspective do you start by um having creating a, a leadership culture for, for the organization how does that come about 
That's a that's a really um, that's a good question, Mike, and it's a difficult question to answer. So, how do you lead um, volumes of people? And the, the short answer is through your managers. Um, how do you create the leadership culture? Um, you ensure that your managers share the same worldview of what leadership means. Um, and my view is, I think our leaders. Um, in RPS have three key roles. They have to inspire, they have to motivate, and they have to develop. So setting the culture requires my leaders to be able to do that and then to really reaffirm those standards throughout the organisation. And when I say inspire, it, it doesn't mean that you have to be Winston Churchill or Barack Obama and stand up in front of people and and make grand speeches or make grand gestures. It's about linking people's day-to-day activities to the direction, strategy and success of the company. So no matter what you do, every day there's an opportunity during the working day to talk to someone and to find out what they're doing and then to tell them why it's important and to tell them what their contribution is towards the success of the company and the organization Uh, and it is quite difficult sometimes but when you can do it and when you can get it right when you can think of the organization and what it's achieving and what those constituent parts are doing for success and link it through to the success of the company you've got the ability to motivate the second sorry the ability to inspire the second thing is to motivate and I think um, motivate good and motivate bad. Um, Statistically, I think we spend 90% of our time giving constructive feedback and you might call that negative feedback and 10% of our time, if we're lucky, doing positive feedback. We like to flip that. Um, It's difficult to do, um, but when someone has done a good job and sometimes someone's done a good job, they've hit every single delivery milestone in their project on time to the required quality. And it might well be a project that doesn't get the airtime as some of our more glamorous projects. We have to meet those people. We have to get to those people and explain why it's important what they've done and why that is good, good for the organization, why they are good in terms of delivering it. The second part of motivation is when people aren't delivering to the required standards is to make them aware that they're not. Um, To have very clear boundaries about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Because there is nothing more demotivating for most of our high performers than to see an organisation accept low performers. So we've got to inspire, we've got to motivate. The most important element of leadership, I believe, is to develop. Um, We can develop the capabilities uh, of our team across the piece. Um, I try to work within my consulting lead team to develop each other. We know what things we can do better. um, And so we know what we have to do differently. And we discuss it on a regular basis. But if you develop your leaders, then your job becomes that much more easier as you go through the years. Um, I believe that people are attracted to organisations where their career is developed. And actually, I'd like to make RPS the sort of, you know, the beacon of somewhere you go to develop your career. And that is a role which is, if you sit there and you do not develop your staff within an organisation, you'll have the same organisation 
when you leave three, four, five years later. So inspire, but not as Winston Churchill, link people's efforts to the success of the company. Motivate, tell, tell our people what's good, tell our people what's not acceptable and develop everybody. Everybody has the ability to develop. If you're the world's best um, control systems engineer, then you have to keep abreast of what's coming over the horizon, the new techniques, the new technology. If you want to be the next CEO, you've got to take the first step and understand the portfolio of things which you probably didn't understand. Everybody can develop. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, My beliefs fully resonate with exactly what you've just said. And uh, if I may, I want to go through to maybe a couple of details into that. So like um, motivation uh, and you talk about uh, con constructive criticism, setting the boundaries to know what's what's what looks like good work and what looks like poor work. Obviously, when you're giving uh, feedback that that doesn't hold up to the, the level of quality or the performance that we'd expect, there must I, I'm guessing there must be a way in which you approach that. Because there has, there has to, there's probably two ways, uh, and it might come down to the individual that you're talking to. If you go in too hard, it might demotivate them further and damage the performance further. But equally, for some people, if you don't go in hard enough, they might just think that you're not taken seriously and, and, and forget about it. How do you strike that balance, I guess? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so my preferred method is to bring um, my, my, my favorite question is what does good look like so if I'm talking to um, somebody who needs some constructive feedback to improve on their job I'll start investigating with them what do they think good looks like and if they say to me good is arriving at work at half past ten in the morning you know scruffily dressed um, suffering the after effects from the night before, um, swearing at employees, then, then we have a, a, a different world view of what good looks like. So the first challenge is to challenge those assumptions you know, and, and to say, well, why do you think that's good? And point to someone who's good in the organization and what is it about them? So you, you have to make it real for them. Um, when I was coaching um, football in, in Denmark, um, the biggest motivator for bringing poorer players up to standard was to link what they did on the field to their favorite player uh, and over a period of about three months I got used I got I, I got um, I got to know each of the players favorite football teamers and I was coaching sort of 15 year olds there uh, and you go into them and you'd say okay what does Andreas Cornelius who's a, a Danish center forward what does he do in this situation they say, oh he turns right and makes that run and I said okay so why don't you do that Ah, right, okay. And now he's contextualizing what good looks like. And so he's much more open to receptive to the next time when he's when he hasn't made that run, I'll say to him, Cornelius, and he'll go, ah, got it, and he'll make it straight away. I haven't been negative. I've shown him what good looks like. I've contextualized what good looks like. And then naturally that person will start making the moves that I wanted them to do. Exactly the same in business. Um, exactly the same in construction. Everybody knows someone that does something good. We don't know many people that do a hundred things or everything good, but you know someone who does something good. And if there's, if you can link that person's thoughts, they so say, yeah, he does it good. I would like to do it like that. Then you've got the motivation as well. So compare your worldviews, where their difference, 
try and give them tangible reasons of why they should be changing and what good looks like and you'll see better results. Um, getting back to the uh, don't do it this way, don't do it that way, or I don't like the fact you turn up at half past 10, it, it, it puts you in conflict. Uh, and most of the people that work in construction are quite articulate and, and quite intelligent. And if you put conflict into an intelligent person, you get conflict back. Um, and you spend your intellectual capacity arguing about what was right or wrong in your assumption of what they did. Much better to jointly agree what good looks like and then contextualise it and shoot for it. I think that's a really important point because something that I've learned throughout my journey um, of, of you know, becoming a better leader is uh, to ask questions. I, I, I fully believe that you've got to try and ask lots and lots and lots of questions. Um, so, for example, uh, a lot of my time is spent up, spent looking at the drawing markups and report markups, and it uh, comes very easy. Uh, certainly, the way you might start off with, or the way I started, was dictating: move this here, change that colour, do this, do that, do that. And a lot of people, uh, myself included, don't like being told what to do a lot of times nope. and so I changed it to asking and um, I found that the response is a lot lot different and um, if you are it, it might not mean to be overly critical but it comes across as sort of being critical like oh they didn't like the way I did this oh you just do it then why am I doing it sort of thing but if you actually ask the questions the approach is is received a lot better so I, I definitely agree with what you're saying there uh, in terms of develop them, because um, I was quite surprised to sort of find out. I mean, throughout my whole career, I've, I've had annual appraisals with my managers and always looked at the past year's performance, development into next year. What would you, how would you like to improve? And, and then you'd review that on an annual basis. I've always had that. And I was surprised to hear that not every organisation does that. So in terms of develop, um, what is it that RPS do to, to help develop their employees? I think, well, my, my first answer that would be um, not enough, but then every organisation I've worked in, it's, it's never enough from my perspective. So there's always more you can do. Um, so the first thing in terms of, of developing is um, what framework are you operating in? So if we have a, 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 a apprentice CAD technician, what is his or her next step? Um, and what are the things that he or she needs to do? And then after that, what's the next step? And what are the things that he or she needs to do? What are the things that the company's going to provide? And what are the things which the individual has to make the efforts to be able to achieve? So the first thing you have to do is give people a framework. And that can be very simple career pathways documents. Then you've got to make the resources available, which, which, which every company does. Um, the third thing, and the thing which um, we forget when we when we have development discussions, is what are the motivations of that individual? Uh, and and I find this to be the most useful part of, of of my appraisal and my discussions within my team is you know where is it you want to be? Um, where is it you want to be in? I like three and five years as a timeline. Um, and if the answer is retired by the end of next week, John, then then so be it. Um, but if the answer is um, I'd like your job, then what can the company do to make that happen? 
what are the experiences that individual needs to get to that position? What are the, the skills or knowledge that that person needs to get to that position? It might well be that they want to work in an adjacent business in a different sector. How can we expose them to those things where they get those skills and experience in order to be able to progress? Um, but you've really got to get behind people's motivations to want to do that. Because we can make resources available, we can give people different experiences, we can give them knowledge and training, but if they don't want to do it, if they all want to be professional footballers or drive Formula One racing cars, and that is their real passion in life, you're, you're flogging a dead horse. So the first part of any development discussion is, you know, where do you see yourself and what are your, what are your motivations of getting to that point? And if the motivations are good, then the company should stand up and give the person the resources. Not sure if I've answered your question. Mark. No, you have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, again, I, you know, I agree with exactly what you're saying. I think um, the process, usually there's like a, a form that you fill out or, you know, whatever. There's a, usually a process in which you go for. And uh, in the in the people that I sort of line manage or that I lead, um, I always try to look beyond what the form is asking us. And I'll just put that to one side and... Uh, I want to sort of really know what it is you're passionate about. Where is it that you want to go? You know, my passion, because I'm quite sad, is leadership. I'm really into that. And, you know, you asked me thought three, four years ago, again, really sad. It might have been I'm really passionate about concrete and how you put that together and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there's only so many ways you can sort of sort of help someone um, in terms of their passion. But... um, I always sort of find I, I've become a bit more of a mentor, someone they can talk to, talk about their passions, not just on a work base, how we're going to meet the company's targets, how we're going to meet, you know, your next, how are you going to get to your next uh, promotion? Really just sort of looking at what, what is it that you, what are your hobbies, what are your passions, what is it that you like to do in life? Because that is, I believe, is what brings people fulfillment. Um, and then try to shape our objectives on our review around that. It's personally how I approach that. Yeah, and, and then the objectives become more meaningful. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. I've worked in many organisations and the, the reporting and appraisal process is a vehicle. Um, and they've all been good or bad or, or a mixture of both. The value is in the conversation. Uh, um, what you've just articulated there is, you know, how can we get career fulfilment? When I'm interviewing candidates to join RBS, <clears throat> One of the questions I like to ask is, what does your dream job look like? You know, and, and secondly, what do you want from RPS if, you know, if we offer you this job? What do you want? Because when I can match what the individual wants to what the company want, wants, I get great results. So sometimes it's not about picking the sort of the obvious best candidate. Because the obvious best candidate has got all the experiences, ticks all the boxes that you wanted on the on the application form, might just not see this as their ideal job. They might be looking to the next one. They might be um, using it to pay the mortgage. We've all got to pay the mortgage. Where someone is really motivated to do it, and this is, and and, and you have to be able to read people to a certain extent to, to believe them when you ask these questions, where you match individuals, and I think you used the word fulfillment, what would be fulfilling in that job, and that what you require as a company, you get great results. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think um, I think leaders have a huge part to play in that as well. 
and and I think you know you talk about in terms of when you're appointing people and job interviews. Uh, you know, I've been to a couple in my time, and when you're in that interview, you really got to assess that the people interviewing you are they the leaders that you want to be led by. And uh, I, um, be honest, I I do work for RPS, so, um, but I didn't always. You know, I uh, I had a year or two in the middle where I left and then came back again. And the reason why I came back was because of the leaders. I could see the culture was different. I could see the leadership was different. And I think when when the values of the leaders and what they're trying to do with an organization or with a business or with a team, then when it aligns with what you believe, that's when you really start to get um, magical things happening, I think, you know. And uh, when you've got people that are, you know, genuinely interested in those sort of questions that are going to listen to what you want, and and get the right mix of that uh, from the start is absolutely important. Yeah, I think uh, there is um, there is an arrogance in the interview process that says, "Am I going to accept this person?" Sometimes, and actually, the person is looking at the interviewer saying, "Do I want to work for this outfit?" Um, so, on many occasions, I've spent considerable time at interview explaining what we're trying to do as an organization and why i believe that's exciting and if it resonates with the individual and they want to be part of that then you start discussing their fit and then their expertise and and ability to deliver in the job and when all those three things meet you've got a good candidate that's actually fantastic um i want to sort of slightly move on a little bit because um I'm really interested to hear from the, um, the perspective of yourself, you know, of a CEO for an organisation. Um, you know, every sort of 10 years or so, a sort of crisis sort of rears its head and an organisation has to sort of um, try and survive through those crises. And at the moment, we're going through a pretty fairly large, sizable crisis. What, how do you lead through a crisis? And, and, you know, your time in the Royal Navy, is that something that's helped you through, through leading through a crisis? Um, it probably has, to be honest. Um, if I think about that sort of first 20 years, 21 years of my life, um, it was really hard conditioning to be able to manage and lead in uncertainty. Um, because, you know, what one thing is for, sh- for sure in any conflict, uh, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, so you're going to have to change what you do um, when when bullets start flying. And what and what the services are really good at doing is helping you understand that you can't see the whole picture. One, so you have to be intuitive about where your information gaps are, and also understand whether you have to make a decision now or whether you can wait for certain pieces of information to come in. And it, it, it puts you in a whole load of uh, high stress environments and drives you to distraction to see if you can manage in those environments. And if you can, the, the services quite like you and they keep you and, and they promote you. So that conditioning of managing and leading in uncertainty is really good preparation for any crisis, whether it's an economic one or, or a pandemic one, which we're looking at now, whether it's a sector crash um, or, or whatever. Um, so understanding and not understanding uncertainty, being able to live with uncertainty and knowing when to make decisions is probably the thing that's really helped me most 
in terms of working within a crisis. You know, quite fond of saying, what do we don't know that we don't know? Um, because that helps you understand the breadth of what you're dealing with. What was the question again, Mike? Because I think I went off piece there. No, no, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, struggling to remember. <laughs> it's how do you sort of lead through a crisis? Right. Okay. So, so um, yeah. So the the sort of military conditioning and then the business conditioning after that, really, to be honest, lots and lots of crises over the years. Um, then you have to look at the 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 organisation as a whole. Uh, and and have th- I like to look at three dimensions. Um, students of lead- leadership will know this is called action-centered leadership. Um, look at the task. What have you got to deliver? Look at the team and look at the individual. And all of these elements are important at any one point, uh, either in a crisis or even day-to-day operations when things are normal, although things never appear to be normal. You know, uh, if I think back to let's let's use the pandemic as a as a good example i think back to march when we could see it coming and we 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 had a a case in the organization um what was important at that time was it the task and the task is to give the shareholders a return you know absolutely we are a business if we don't make money we cease being a business pretty quickly and we implode and disappear was the task at that point in time of making money important no it wasn't because the team became important. And how are we going to take this team, you know, within consulting business, how are we going to take this team through whatever happens next? And that required us as a leadership team to say, right, what is going to happen next? Um, We were quite lucky in this pandemic because the Republic of Ireland were two weeks ahead of us. So um, Jerry Carty, the MD there, was dealing with the problems two weeks earlier. But as a leadership team, we were looking ahead saying, what is going to happen next? Go, right, we think it's going to lock down. OK, if it locks down, what are we going to do? We need to make sure that people got their laptops, their ways of working, the connectivity to be able to be effective from home. Uh, and we got on with that very, very quickly. So that's a, that's a, an example of trying to think um, in the team context and thinking forward. As we go through the pandemic, um, protecting the team, giving the team an understanding of what's going to happen next, conditioning them for it. Then you have to look within the team and say, what about the individuals? Um, And you will know that we've ramped up an awful lot of mental health activities in the last quarter of last year. Because when we sat down as a leadership team and said, right, what's happening now? We could all see a lockdown coming in November. And um, we could all see uh, another lockdown happening in quarter one. Uh, and, and, you know, we're not stargazers. We don't have crystal balls. Um, it just appeared that that was going to happen. And say, right, winter is going to be dark. Um, we will trade through it because we've been quite successful to date. We've got the right pipeline of business. So the task is the task is OK. We think we're OK with the task. The team is effective in terms of the way it's being led and the way it's delivering but the individual could be quite exposed now and we know nothing about an individual's working life so it could be that someone's um, locked down in a house with an abusive partner it could be that someone's locked in a house share with three people that 
he or she really does not want to be with. It could be that that individual is locked up in a one-bedroom flat in the middle of a city with, with no garden. People are in such different circumstances that we had to start thinking about the individuals of an organisation. Uh, and our response to that was um, to roll out quite a lot of um, well-being, mental health awareness to the organisation because the individual, and we're sat in the middle of this at the moment, the individuals are the most important things that we have to look after as the leaders. The task will look after itself at the moment. The team is quite well formed and used to doing this. We worry about the individuals, so that's where the focus goes. And at any one point um, as a leader, at any one point in time, you have to balance these needs. You know what's important now. Is it really important to make a profit now? Well, it absolutely is. Otherwise, we get eaten up by someone else, or we just disappear as an organisation. And so, therefore, you put your efforts into that. You know how cohesive is the team? Is it collaborating? We need to put our efforts into that. So, at any one point in time, it's situational awareness. What is important right now? That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> Try to. Uh process some of that and um to talking about well-being then um yeah I, i've noticed a lot of uh tips and hints about sort of well-being and i suppose maybe i'm a little bit lucky in that um uh, the series of lockdowns that we've had hasn't um or maybe i've not noticed it but hasn't uh, uh mentally or uh, affected me as such i've sort of been able to ride with it and uh, that probably stems from working remote quite often anyways, but pre, pre-COVID, but I was, I, w- I think I was very lucky. Um, but I do recognise in myself when I need to, uh, you know, go out and walk the dog, get some fresh air. Um, I recognise in my family when they need to go out, get some fresh air, get some exercise, because getting cooped up in the house for too long is too bad. Being connected to the TV or being connected to technology for too long is, is, is not great. Um, so that's sort of the things that we do in our household. And what what would you what is the sort of things that you do in terms of helping your mental well-being? And maybe the sort of best takeaway from all the initiatives uh, that you would recommend to people. Well, that's a good one. So we we as you know we promote sort of um, five a day mental mental health well-being initiatives, um, and they're sort of be active learn something, communicate. Um, and one of the really more interesting ones is to give, you know, to, to give something back. And whether that's within your family or, or outside, then learn a new skill. Um, those are the sort of five. But what do I do? Uh, I, um, I, I've, I've, I've had a bad learning on this, Mike, I'll share this with you, um, is that possibly about five or six years ago, um, I never stopped working. Um, I was sort of a slave to the role. Um, I never took breaks. I I was constantly thinking to the extent where I was never really sleeping properly because I'm always thinking about solutions and problems within the business. And that put me into a state of depression. And one of the things about you talk to anyone who's had depression is they don't know they're in it for a start. And secondly, you can be quite you can be quite a, um, a high-performing individual whilst not being in a good place. Um, so 
I actually, at that time, I, I went to the doctor and said, I just want a good night's sleep. And they said, oh, actually, we don't think that's true. You know, ask a load of questions. So, yeah, we, we think you're depressed, John, and you need to go and do talking therapy um, and a number of other things. And that taught me to really start thinking about myself as a leader. Um, because the business was doing fantastically well. Um, anyway, I, I did and I changed things. And, and going through the, the current process has really enabled me to look back on that episode and learn a lot from it. I know personally the things I like to do. And, the, and they're primarily two things. One is to get exercise and get exercise outside of the house. You have to get the the fresh air or the sunlight, or well, not much sunlight around at the moment, but you just have to get out of the house and away from the screen. Um, and when you do that, that has to be part of the working day. Um, so that's my my biggest one. The second thing is when I finished on the working day, I have to go and immerse myself in something else, and something else which I, I cannot do whilst thinking about work. The transformative effect of doing that is phenomenal. I will spend most evenings uh, an hour or so in the garage um, working on my electric Vespa. Uh, and I, I, whilst I'm mucking around with that, or tinkering as Mrs Chubb will say, uh, I'm in a completely different place. Uh, I'm not thinking about anything other than how do I get this controller program to get this amount of torque on the back wheel. Uh, and I know I'm being geeky now, but I'm just lost in it. And you only have to get lost for an hour or so to break all the work thinking things that are going around in your head. So for me, just from bitter experience, exercise and doing something where I can bury myself in it really helps. The third part and what sort of the RPS well-being has taught me is to give to people, to, to give people something. Uh, and that might be within the, the four walls where you live. Yeah, I've got sort of two grumpy teenagers at the moment, but I have to help them. Um, every now and again, I take Mrs. Chubb for granted and I have to tell her, well, this is great what you've been doing there, you know, and and and, uh, and help her with something or surprise her by being nice, which she would say would be nice maybe once a year. But uh, maybe do things, you know, a little bit um, spont spontaneously. Uh, that's important. And thinking that way is important. But it's, it's bitter experience for me, Mike, I must admit. Mm. Uh, but I know now where my limitations are on that. And I know that the breaks are really important. I am so much more productive after doing a 40-minute bike ride or an hour's bike ride. I am so much more productive the next day for taking a break and immersing myself in, in something else. If you're slave to the screen for 16, 18 hours a day, you become ineffective. Mm. Well, no, thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, I think I think that's all such important things. And I th as I say, very sort of similar to yourself, getting, I like to get fresh air. And uh, the dog's probably been walked more times this year than <laughs> she's an old dog, bless her. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we, we try to do um, family things and things like that. And, and date nights, you know, we can't go out anymore. We try and do date nights inside, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do, and get better, get better dressed up, but a bit of an excuse, you know, um, that sort of thing. And it, I do think those things are important. And uh, I, I have to, I have to say to my wife, sometimes we've just got to try and make these sort of things as a priority. There's lots of things to keep on, lots of plates to keep spinning. Working from home is one of them. Homeschooling is another. Looking after the other is it, 
keeping the house just you know in order is is, is hard enough all these bottle plates spinning at the same time you're feeling emotionally down because you're not seeing well my wife's only seen my ugly mug for you know, you, you know so you're not seeing your friends you're not seeing your family so it is extremely tough um and just rec- trying to recognize in yourself when you need to take that time and it and i think it does take training they say i think i'm lucky because maybe perhaps i maybe i'm wired this way or maybe i've gone through these uh, uh, earlier stages in my life that I know sort of what I need to go, when I need to go and take a break and that sort of stuff. And uh, when I'm working too hard or, or, you know, working too much, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's really important. So, you know, I, I've really valued our time and uh, just um, we'll have to unfortunately bring this to a close. And I want to thank you ever so much. But the, the parting question I want to ask is, um, what is the most important aspect of leadership? Or what do you think is the most important aspect of leadership? Easy. Authenticity. Um, uh, I'm in this business for the for the betterment of the business. I'm in the business for the for the benefit of the people within the business. Um, it's 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 quite a heavy weight on your shoulders. Um, I, have to make decisions. In fact, I've got a very strong leadership team, so I'm quite lucky. But we have to make decisions that give the business a future. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that the organisation believes me when I say that. Um, so I do look for authenticity in in everybody that, that works with me. Um, if you're in it for yourself or you're in it for, for the money, um, which which we all are because again we've all got mortgages then then so be it but I'm looking for people that are authentic the authentic leaders um, inevitably get trust and if if you can get the trust of an organization then that organization will succeed mm-hmm. no I could not agree more um, John it's been an absolute pleasure thank you ever so much for your time pleasure thanks Mike